0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear.
1: It's happening. I can feel it.
0: How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see the individual. I see the individual. I'm against communism, capitalism, 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 fascism, Nazism, I'm against everything and I've often wanted what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck.
2: Good morning, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that explores the mysteries, challenges, and opportunities of our human journey, and presents the work of some of the most brilliant, creative, and caring people who are helping to create the more beautiful world that we know is possible. Death is one of the greatest mysteries of life. We all die, and as a culture, We don't talk about death and dying. Today, we are going to be talking about death and dying with my guest in the studio, Michelle Achavadi. Michelle is an end-of-life specialist at Ending Well, an advanced care planning, death midwifery, home funerals, and more kind of consulting business. If you're concerned about or have been thinking about death and dying and how you would like to approach death, then this is the show for you. We're going to be talking about the things that most of us are too uncomfortable or just don't know how to talk about with others and maybe even with ourselves. This is going to be a no-holds-barred show on the many elements and possibilities of dying prior to, during, and after. Michelle, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour.
3: Thank you for having me, good morning.
2: Good morning. So, why are we so afraid to talk about death? And why should we be talking about death?
3: Okay, those are two very, very good questions. The first question I think I answer differently um, almost every time I'm asked, but I was recently having a conversation I think that death used to be something that was so common that it was almost taken for granted. People died, lots of children died before they you know, reached a couple years of age. I think it was something that we were just more exposed to. So there was no need to really talk about it. It was there in front of us all the time. And as medicine advanced and as hospitals got more equipped, we started moving death away and it became something that happened somewhere else and it was removed from us. And so I think our culture has shifted along those lines to just... We don't really see it. We don't participate in it um, as a community. We don't see the people who are dying. We don't comfort the people that are grieving. Mostly because we're afraid. We don't know what to say or do. It's again, it's it's an alien experience to us. So I think that you know, in a way, some of these great advances in medical technology that help us live longer and help us live better and healthier lives have. Created this sort of this fear and this unnaturalness to to death and it's become something that is almost Shameful and hidden away So I think that that's a big part of why we don't talk about it And I also think that that's the big reason that we should because it's not something that shameful or should be hidden away And it is a part of life as you said in your intro everybody dies It's you know, it's one of two shared experiences of every human being we are all born and we all die, and um, and our bodies fall apart, yeah. deteriorate in that. Process. Well, this is this is a big part of it for me. As we've hidden away the dying process, we've also hidden away the aging process, right? Betty White is an exception. Most people don't age like that. As we get older, we, we start to slow down um, and our bodies don't work the way they used to. And I actually just recently wrote a blog post about this that some of the things that we are very accepting as a culture and a society of toddlers not being able to do and we applaud their mastery of as they grow up we're very um i can't quite think of the word but we're ashamed of it as when we get older we start to have trouble with it like when it becomes harder to walk again or you know even to take care of some of our more basic needs if we need help being fed this is something that people feel great shame around and i've taken care of people that don't want their family to visit them because they don't want their family to see them in this way and it's just sort of strange to think that they once raised children that needed help being fed and walking and now they can't accept that help from themselves because yeah we've forgotten that aging is also a part of life
2: it's interesting that you brought that up because we love children we love babies we love infants that can't take care of themselves but we're we hot hi- we we hide old people away we put them in nursing homes when they when they can't function anymore it seems that our culture is trying to avoid even being aware of of old people when when they're deteriorating and falling apart. It's like people no they don't want to deal with that. They they don't consider old old decrepit people, falling apart people to be lovable and desirable and they're almost the exact opposite of the way they relate to little infants.
3: Yeah. And I I think that, you know, we don't see ourselves so much in the infants, so it's easier, right? There are these things that, that don't look like us, and so we can lavish this attention on them, and it's so sweet. And I think that, you know, consciously or not, we do see ourselves in the people that are aging and in the people that are dying, and that raises all those fears, all those unaddressed fears that we have. Um, that we don't want to remember, and I would be very curious to know if in societies where taking care of aging parents in the home, places like Japan, where that used to be at least very common, you know, if they have a different viewpoint on it, and you know, if they don't have this, put it away, don't think about it, don't, you know, don't don't think about the fact that I'm going to someday be like that.
2: Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing that's changed because in even in this country, old people, you know, stayed stayed at home, and people took care of them. And now, that's not the case.
3: Yeah, I or remember. It's
2: rarely the case.
3: Yeah, one of my family stories. My mother comes from a very large Polish family in Milwaukee, and one of my grandfather's greatest achievements when he started working was being able to buy three houses in the same block. So one for him to raise his family in, one for his mother, and one for his wife's mother, so that. And my grandmother actually would go to the other houses every day and take care of her mother-in-law and her mother as, as long as they were able to stay in those homes, and they both died in those homes.
2: What a wonderful way to embrace all, all of the responsibilities of life. And, and so talking about dealing with death, the inevitable coming, impending, die, d- death and dying, dying, the process as we move towards death, how how do we best approach that topic? And how how is your work related to that?
3: You know, I don't think there's a universal best. Um, and that's a lot of what I try to do in my work. Um, as I have grown into this position, into this calling, I've looked at many, many different ways. Because I think when you really get down to it, This is a very vulnerable type of place to be in when you really get someone thinking about their own death and it's going to be very different for everybody. Um, And so when I do my work, I have to be willing to also get vulnerable to uh, embrace the vulnerability that I'm seeing, but to meet that person on that level and wherever they are. So I think that, you know, the last time I was on your show, I was here with uh, two of my co-facilitators of the Death Cafe. So there are some things that we can do on a universal level talking about death more. Having these safe spaces where people can gather and talk about their thoughts and feelings about death is a really good thing. Um, I think that the advice to create an advanced directive or at least communicate your wishes to your loved one is, you know, these, these are things that is be, are beginning to become part of the national conversation. Medicare reimbursing doctors to have conversations with you about your end of life wishes. So those are things on a universal level that happens. But really when you're working with an individual, you have to work with that individual and that means tailoring what, for me, what I say and what I help that person with to them there's very little or I if, if I'm doing my job well there's very little direction and a lot of support coming from me so um, I like to, to say that it's a chance to slow down and to for me to present you with all of the many options to really think about what it is that you need how it may be addressed because I mean you always have options and then have that person choose what's right for them and support them in moving forward. And that's whether we're talking about planning or if I'm caring for somebody or what kind of funeral we're going to have for them. There's options. And what people need is that chance to slow down, to be told it's okay to consider their options, to be informed of what all their options are and then be supported once they make that choice.
2: So you're involved in all three phases?
3: In all three phases. And I also... um Recognizing, I've so I'm in my my approaching my mid 30s. So I'm at that stage where lots and lots of people in my life are having babies, and so it's um it's been a very poignant piece for me to also specifically study pregnancy loss. This is another thing that we don't talk about, but it's another form of death and it's another form of grief. And so I've added. Training that's specifically geared for supporting women that either know that they're going to experience uh, a pregnancy loss or unexpectedly experience a pregnancy loss, but I can actually be there and support them for that as well. So, all three phases throughout the span of life is what I can support people with. So, what what's your personal
2: experience around death and dying? What are your thoughts and feelings about it? What's your relationship? personally with death and how you feel about it
3: it's an evolving relationship um you know it's it's always sad you know one thing people always say you know this must be so sad or you're so brave to do what you do um and i don't feel brave this is a calling i feel very lucky um but i will say that it's never not sad Uh, when somebody I know dies but my parents uh, raised me without any um, veil between life and and death Uh, when people either in my family or people that they knew died I went to funerals with them I was informed uh, from a very early age we talked about death Um, when I was six I had a major surgery and although I don't remember it um, you know there were some complications not that that could have happened that didn't happen but I'm sure that my parents themselves were contemplating the fact that it was possible that I was going to die and that you know and I was at a children's hospital Um, uh, we lived in San Diego at the time and there were children there when I was recuperating that did die and so those conversations took place um, so even at an age where I wasn't really capable of forming a, a, a real comprehension of the finality of death, I was aware that it was something that happened. Um, so, you know, that was a very transformative experience um, and one that I don't think about a lot. Uh, and then having many, many relatives, older relatives pass away as I grew up and. Um, major things when I was a, a senior in college I, um, I had two very good friends uh, who passed away in sudden accidents um and I I I really try to stay away from euphemisms so you can see how painful that is for me because I still closet that in a box they died they died in sudden accidents um and now um and then I went back to work I was working in a children's hospital and again with a lot of of death of kids um was a part of what I was seeing in my everyday life in my work life and um now working as a hospice volunteer. So it's something that I have had a personal and a professional relationship with for a long time and something that I've had to weave into myself um, because I've lost people that I care so much about. It's had to be something that I've had to learn to accept and put into my worldview.
2: So how do you learn to accept death, particularly since you've, you've experienced it so much around you? How do, how do you integrate that? How, how do you come to terms with it?
3: You know, it's pithy to say accept it, but it's, you know, it, it's just, it's something that happens. There's really nothing else that you can do about it. I think there are some beautiful traditions that people um, have, either religious or otherwise, that they, they develop around death. And I think those traditions and rituals are really great in the days, weeks, Uh, Certain traditions, you know, go for a whole year in the Jewish tradition of mourning for certain people, um, depending on your relationship to the person that's died. But at some point, you just have to let it happen and feel all of the feelings and feel that reality and this idea that it's going to go away or get better. It does get better, but it, you don't move on from it. You don't close a door and, and stop feeling the loss of somebody. And I think that that's what I mean by coming to accept it is it's just it's something that I carry as a part of me, that there are people that I have lost and I have their memories and, um, and I won't ever see them or talk to them in a certain way again. But, you know, <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's hard. So what do you
2: bring to people who are dealing with dying and death? What what do you offer them?
3: So I try to actually... So all this stuff that we've just talked about is who I am, and I try to leave a lot of that at the door. So I try to bring to them just someone who is a supporting presence. I really just try to be there, and I really try to find out what it is that they need and be that. So... That's it's a it sounds very simple and it's hard work, but I really try not to bring any uh, intentions through the door.
2: My guest is Michelle Achavati. Sure. She's an end of life <laughs> specialist, and we have a caller on the line. Welcome.
3: Oh, it's me, Trisha. Uh, I have read
1: about you in the Bridge, actually, Michelle. Oh, um, I good. Was just going to give an I don't know, just some thoughts. I'm extremely old. I'm past my cell by date, as they say. So, um, I one thing I think was interesting I read somewhere. If we knew the date of our death, we would not believe we were immortal. But because we don't know, in a way, we believe we're immortal.
3: Yeah? Yes, it's a wonderful thought where we can pretend. It's like magical thinking. Well,
1: it's, it's in our subconscious order. Anyhow, um, I was um, hit by a buzz bomb in the war, and um, I was on a high up floor, and I was alone the time, and I was bleeding very, very heavily from glass. Um, and I thought my jugular vein... Cut. So I really thought I was dying as I walked down the stairs, right?
3: And my main feeling was like, oh, well, here we go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think that here that's, we go. Yeah, that's a really common experience. When people think that they're actually dying, they just, yeah, here we go. <laughs> here we go, yeah.
1: And my father um, actually um, died uh, in his own bed. I was there. doctor was shocked at the thought of him going to the hospital. And um I'm not a psychic person or sensitive in any way, but um when he died, which is like he had some drugs, he went to sleep, um, it was like something went out of the room. Almost like a
3: you know? Yeah, I think there's a very tangible quality when someone when someone really does die, you can really sense that difference.
1: Yeah. It was it was amazing to me because like I really felt, Oh well he's gone. He's really gone, you know? Yeah. And out of here. Who knows where, but
3: know,
2: anyway, that's all I had to say, okay? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. What are the questions and concerns that you get most from people that come to you about this?
3: So with planning, um, so I hope my mother-in-law doesn't mind. I like to use her as an example. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, what should I be doing? there's all this information out there about how we should be planning. Um, And there's great workshops and things. There's, uh, you know, national programs like the Conversation Project. There's in Vermont, the VNAs of Vermont have a, a toolkit called Start the Conversation. And there's all these things and people still don't know quite what it is to do and what it is to say. And so what they really need, I feel, is a sounding board. So my mother-in-law was like, should I be talking about this? Should I talk to my doctor about this? Is this okay to talk to my doctor about? And I was like, absolutely, uh, in her case. Some people might have things where maybe there's someone better in there to talk about that's been trained, you know, a social worker, maybe a chaplain. Um, but, you know, there's never something you should keep to yourself. Uh, and I so... Uh, But I think that this idea of, is it okay that I have these questions is something that I confront over and over again. And when I'm with people, I work as a hospice volunteer. And um, when I come in terms with families, again, that question is, is this normal? Is this, you know, they're breathing funny. Is that normal? They, you know, they don't look the same. They don't sound the same. They're, you know, is this normal? Is this normal? Um, Is again, just that reassurance that, yeah, you know, I mean, as much as death is normal, because every death is unique, you know, but yes, this is something that we can expect. This is something that has a reason that it's happening. Um, and then, you know, the, the where it gets a little bit more fun is people that know about home funerals and want to talk about home funerals. Then their questions are, you know, making sure, is this legal? And it is. Uh, Vermont is actually a really great state if you want to have a home funeral, has a lot of support in place for families that want to pursue those options. And then it's just a then those questions are, well, how do I best personalize this ritual for my loved one? And, and that can be a great conversation. Um, but all of the conversations, I think I try to find a way to turn into how do I best personalize this? So when I do planning, I, my difference for me is I call it values-based advanced care planning. I don't necessarily need you to decide on what medical options you want or don't want. Um, Most of the time, we can't foresee the actual medical situations that we're going to end up in. But we can talk about what really matters to you in terms of quality of life. And so that conversation might look like just talking about what's a good day for you and what do you do on that good day and then plucking from that. Okay, so it sounds like being able to talk to your family is really important to you. So if you couldn't communicate with your family? How would you feel about your quality of life? And then we have a metric. So if something were to happen and they weren't able to make decisions for themselves, but the outcome would be that they would be no longer able to communicate, then the person that they've appointed as their healthcare proxy would know, okay, this is not acceptable for them. This is not an acceptable quality of life. And even with the caregiving, um, one of the things that I have experience with is narrative nonfiction and that takes sometimes takes the form of writing memoirs or life reviews so even when people are dying taking time to think about all the ways that they've contributed to the world to their families um, or sometimes even processing guilt that they haven't done that or that they've harmed their families but just going through that and looking through their lives and again having these conversations that become very personal and become whether it's a it's a funeral or someone's dying experience or even someone's planning experience Always it comes down to being a celebration of who they are and how they want to live, because that's how we die. if if we if we're lucky, we die the way that we live.
2: Mm. <clears throat> that reminds me of a wonderful movie in Barbarian Invasions. <laughs> do you, do you,
3: I'm not sure I've seen that one.
2: It's a Canadian film. I think it came out in two thousand and three, and it was wonderful. It was it's about this this college professor who was he had terminal cancer and he was in the hospital. I I think he was in in a hospital. And he invited all the most important people in his life to come visit him, including the people that he had contentious relationships. He had difficult relationships with some of his kids and his ex-wives or ex-girlfriends. And he invited them all, and they just had this freewheeling, kind of no-holds-barred conversation about anything and everything. And it was absolutely wonderful. It was like a celebration of life in the face of death. Yeah. And and I love what you were talking about before. Of It's like taking care of business, of the business of our lives, tying up the loose ends, um, kind of like making sense of everything that happened in our lives, appreciating it, recognizing it. And that is, that's such a, a wonderful thing to do. And if people don't don't think about death and don't talk about death they could potentially miss all of that exactly and and the way you talked about that it just seems like that would be one of the most sad things to miss out on that
3: right you know there's that saying that when a person dies a universe dies Mm. and um i wish i could remember who said it but it, it it's out there um and uh i think that again it's storytelling so um The Wake Up to Dying project that was started in Montpelier uses stories in this way. And I think that before we had T V and all these things, stories were such an important part of our lives. And when we review our lives and we think about our lives, what we have are stories of our lives and To share those with our loved ones or maybe the people that have been difficult, but so many of the people that are difficult in our lives are the impetus for some of the greatest stories of our lives. So to bring all those people together and tell those stories together and to have a chance to share them one more time so that your family has them is, I think, just this wonderful opportunity. Joan Dinian says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think this is the most wonderful gift that we can give our loved ones when we are dying, is to give them our stories so that we can continue to live on with them in that way.
2: So is there a way that we can use death to accentuate life, to make life better or more alive
3: i think so i think you know anytime you get rid of a fear life gets a little better right so i think the reason that death is is so not a part of our lives right now is because we're afraid of it so if we get rid of that fear and we really think about it and you know the wake up to die and project actions what would happen if we thought more about the fact that we were going to die um, you know, and it leaves the answer up to the people that come and listen to their stories. But, you know, I think what would happen is, and I'll, I'll use my experience. The the more that I've, I've done this work and pursued this calling, and I've done so many trainings now, and I've spent over two years working with people who are dying as a hospice volunteer, helped with planning procedures, um, I've helped friends, uh, who are losing, parents or grandparents, um, even through Facebook, you know, any medium, phone calls, Facebook, things like this. Um, And it's really cemented for me a lot about how I want to live. When I started doing this work, I knew a lot about what I didn't want. I knew a lot about what I didn't believe. And that's sort of a negative way to be in the world of all, I'm not going to do this. And I don't believe in this. And First of all, when people are dying, it just opens up your heart and mind because you experience things that have really no rational explanation. Um, And so you just have to really open, or or you don't have to. For me, I have opened up my belief system and my heart into all sorts of things that I never would have thought I would rationally accept, but I do now. And I also am just so much more certain of how I want to live. You know What is really important to me? And am I doing that today? And, you know, am I vegging out today? Do I deserve to veg out today? Should I just eat chocolate ice cream and, you know, watch whatever's good on Amazon Prime? You know, it's okay to have days like that. Um, But as long as I know that it's a part of a bigger whole of, you know, most days of doing things, being in nature, being with my family, um, that, you know, that make me happy, that make me whole. So I think that's what bringing death into our lives gives us. And also gives us that sense of the ephemeral and of that finality. It won't go on forever. It will change. And life is changed. There are so many changes in life that are not death, um, that that cause sadness, that cause suffering. So when we just begin to open up to death, I think we also begin to open up to the fact that, you know, something may happen and, and we have to keep going. It's not the end of the world. If you... You lose your job, you you struggle over something um, and you keep going and and you find a new path. You find something else that makes you happy. You find something else of value as much as possible. It can be hard to find a new job in this economy. So maybe that's not the best example, but it's just life is full of changes. Um, And it just gets us more ready. I think when we think about the big change, death, uh, to accept the smaller changes.
2: Well, let's talk about fear. Um, people are generally af- afraid of change. They're afraid of risk. They're afraid of failure, which are all kind of lesser forms of death. Right. So how do you work with people who are dying and they're experiencing a lot of fear?
3: I really try to create a space for that fear. Um. There is no going in and telling somebody not to be afraid if they're afraid. And why shouldn't they be afraid in that actual moment when they're really dying? You know, who knows what's really going on? Who knows what really comes next? Some people have faith that bolsters them through. Other people, you know, have... Different sets of beliefs that help them, and some people don't. And or some people are desperately afraid of, of being alone or leaving behind loved ones, whatever that fear is. It just needs a space to be in the room and to be talked about and to say it's okay that you're afraid. It really is. Um, because it's the thing we do with fear, we, we make it such a, a terrible thing, and it's a very natural thing. Um, and so to get to know that fear in a way and to try and make friends with it as much as possible that's sort of the role that I have by letting people just talk about it honestly not judging them for having their fears taking them out looking at them at the light so many things look less scary in the light Um, sometimes I can make somebody a promise that if you know people that are very afraid of leaving their loved ones behind that their loved ones are you know going to take care of each other uh, our hospice system supports, has bereavement groups and other, all sorts of supports in place for people that are, that when a loved one has died, um, you know, so there's things there that will take care of them. It won't be the same as how the person that's dying took care of them, but they will have support and they'll have each other. Um, so, you know, that's a fear that can kind of be worked through in a way uh, where you can feel a little bit better about leaving someone behind. And the rest of it is just, naming it as much as possible and saying, okay, this is here and this is what I'm afraid of and maybe I can get over that fear and maybe I'm going to die with that fear but at least I know it. At least I know what it is. At least I know what I'm afraid of because I think that when you don't give people the chance to vocalize their fear, in my experience, that's a lot of times when you see sort of these deaths that linger and they drag on and they involve suffering that can't be treated with medication it's it's suffering on a spiritual level um, and it's i think it's because they've just never even had the space to give it a name and to just have somebody look at them non-judgmentally and say you know that's totally reasonable that you feel that way
2: mm. so how can we deal with the dying of someone that we know that we love i mean how- like a parent or a grandparent, and how how can we best communicate with them if we're a, a lay person? We don't really know anything. We don't have any training.
3: Um, so you may know, and so this is a, it's just a sort. Of plug but I'm having a conference it'll be next week on Friday Saturday and Sunday and there's going to be four workshops on those three days and uh, so Saturday afternoon is actually a community caregiving basics it's a workshop one of my mentors uh, she's an end-of-life doula her name is Suzanne O'Brien is going to be running this workshop so part of what you can do uh, if you are able to come to this workshop is to learn some of the basics of caregiving Um, Some of the really easy ways to take care of people that we might not know because we often don't take care of people when they're sick, how to get someone comfortably in bed, how to make sure that they're safe when they're eating or drinking, Um, how to make sure that it's safe for them to move around the house if they can still move around, how to get them out of bed and into a wheelchair so they can still go outside or feel the sun on their faces. Uh, So we can do practical things like that. And this is so a part of the workshop that I want to give is so that people feel more comfortable doing these things. Hospice will train you if you're in hospice, but if you're uh, either not in hospice or say it's a neighbor or just a friend and you're not part of that training, then it makes it easier for you to go in and say to whoever the primary caregiver is, the person that's had the training, and say, you know, I can sit with this person for a couple hours, I have that confidence. Because I think the most important thing that we can do is give them our time and our presence there's you know lists all over the internet what to say what not to say um and I think you know, there's some good advice on both the what to say and what not to say list, but really it's, it's being there that matters and letting that person take the lead. They may want to talk about the fact that they're going to die. They may want to talk about their favorite memories with you or of their children or of something really great that they did when they were younger. Just whatever it is that they want to talk about. Again, give it space to be said and then follow the conversation and then it becomes a storytelling session. And then again, it can become really fun. And if they need help while you're there, then you know you, if uh, if you come to this workshop on Saturday or, or you've done some basic caregiving training or you've done some training as a hospice volunteer, you can actually, you know, provide that that help for them as well and help them physically. So it's it's the ability to support people both emotionally and on a practical physical level um, and for some people even in a spiritual way. Um, that really counts. And that's what we can do. Um, And that takes getting over our own fear of being there, of being present, of not filling silences with our own words and our own thoughts and letting whatever the person who is dying is thinking about letting that come out and not judging it and just following the conversation, following their lead. And it's very similar advice to how you would support someone who is grieving. Um, The same thing, just follow their lead And give them space to, and give them your presence, your non-judging presence.
2: Hmm. So where is this workshop happening and what are the the details, the logistical details? details?
3: So the workshop uh, is next Friday, August 19th. And then Saturday the twentieth and Sunday the twenty-first. So, and it will all three, uh, four rather, workshops will be in the vestry of the Unitarian Church of Montpelier. So that's at one thirty Main Street. Um, and Friday is an evening session that's from five to eight. And in that session, I'm going to be talking about the values-based advanced uh, advanced care planning that I talked a little bit about and how to incorporate your personal values into an advanced directive, how to pick a healthcare proxy that is really going to be able to support your values if you need someone, uh, if you end up in a situation where you need someone to make uh, care decisions for you. Um, And also, a second part of that is going to be patient literacy and advocacy. I found in a lot of my work that people are... um, concerned about approaching their doctors or contradicting their doctors they don't necessarily feel like they have the right or they're uncomfortable they don't know how to bring it up so we're going to also talk about how to be uh, confident in the questions that you have and become engaged and an empowered part of making decisions about your own health care so that's friday night from five to eight and then Saturday from one to six is the community caregiving basics workshop. Um, so that's Suzanne O'Brien and her organization is called Doula Givers. If people want to look that up on the on the web, and that's a five hour training. There will be breaks, and then uh, so you, again, it's learning caregiving basics. It'll be a really great workshop, uh, practical, and Suzanne is just a really caring and wonderful person. So it'll she'll just really help people and I'll be there too to help people with their fears or anything that they bring that they're worried about that they specifically want to get out of that training. And then Sunday is two things. One is a one is a workshop that's on home funerals. So that's from one to three PM And uh, Lee Webster, who's right now the president of the National Home Funeral Alliance uh, and who grew up in Montpelier, so she'll be coming over and she and I are gonna be co-presenting a workshop about home funerals, the rules around them. If we have enough people there, uh, we'll do a live body demonstration to show you how to care for the body. After death, we will not be using a dead body. Um, (laughs) If anybody's wondering, we'll be a volunteer. Um, but to show you the basics of, of how, to, how to prepare a body for a home funeral memorial and also talk a lot about the logistics of having a home funeral and um, some of the things that you may want to do that in Vermont, you don't need a, a funeral director for anything, not for the paperwork, not for the transport, but it may be easier for you to involve a funeral director. So, And that's called a blended funeral. So how to do that and what things that you might want to turn over to a funeral director Uh, and then after that, from three to six, I'm going to be around if people want to come and ask me questions. Um, I'm going to have a lot of material out from local organizations, uh, about patient literacy, about advanced care planning. I'll have examples of advanced directive forms and, um, material about the different services that I'm integrated with that uh, people have in terms of just learning about what their options are. And I'll also have some really uh, neat things. There's a group in Pennsylvania that sent me, their kit is called The Elephant in the Room to help people talk about death and dying so people can look through that and see if that's something that they want in their lives. And the really great part is the Wake Up to Dying Project has lent me their audio Soundtrack. So they just had a big event up in Burlington, and if or uh, and they had a bunch of events around Vermont and in Massachusetts last year, and they've had events in Montpelier. So if you might have had the chance to go in and listen to their story uh, collection that they have, I think it's now almost two hours long. There's new stories that are being added, and so during breaks um, we'll have some quiet time. And there'll be a corner where people can sit and actually just listen to those stories um, to, again, open up the conversation. Hearing other people's stories about their experiences with death, dying, and, and life, as, as the Wake Up to Dying Project says, will hopefully make people feel more comfortable um, participating in the workshops. So.
2: Mm. so in terms of personal empowerment with death and dying, what are, th- what are the laws in Vermont around Death and dying, and and all of the and the issues that that around that.
3: So Vermont is a state uh, that allows clinician aid in dying. So that's one thing that comes up a lot as a major topic. There are very uh, strict requirements uh, for how you uh, meet the criteria if that's something that is an option for you.
2: And you said the word clinician. What?
3: So. We use clinician in part because it, one of the, the phrases that's used is physician aid in dying. And it's really not about the doctor, it's about you um, or the person that's dying, um, not you specifically. Uh, but for, for the part of the way that this law is written is you have to be able to administer the medication yourself. So this is the, the role of the clinician, which could be anybody that has prescribing power, to prescribe the medication is to prescribe the medication to you to make sure that you meet the criteria to make sure you understand how to take it and what's going to happen when it when you do and uh and then the rest is up to you um and there's actually just been a really beautiful story um on rumble strip that erica hyman does about a best friend supporting his friend through making this choice
2: which we aired here on the show Did you a air couple here? of months ago. Yeah. Okay,
3: yeah. So, I mean, people that haven't heard that story, it's that's just an incredibly moving story because he's just so honest about it's very, very hard to support someone through this decision. Um, but it is an option for people. And I think that um, so people that want more information about that, I do have a lot of information about that, but I also really encourage people to contact Compassion and Choices Vermont. They're there just to provide information. They're not going to try to sell you on anything, but they're the ones that know the law.
2: And who are they again? Then Their name?
3: Compassion and Choices is the national organization. So Compassion and Choices Vermont has their own uh, group, And in fact, the Act 39 is being challenged right now in the legislature. So if it's something that people believe should be a choice for all people, and it, that's really what it is. It's a choice. It's an it's a option. Um, so I believe very strongly that people should have that right to make that decision for themselves. And the state of Vermont agreed uh, over five years ago now. And unfortunately, it's being challenged. And so it's very important if this is something that people feel strongly about that they do Contact the the their legislatures about and let them know that um, that this is something that they want to support. If you don't support it, don't do that. Um, that's just my personal view. Uh, so that's one of the the things that makes Vermont different. You do have to be a Vermont resident. Um, the other things that are that sort of legally affect uh, death and dying in Vermont. So. Uh, there's a respite house uh, that's in Chittenden County. Um, they're moving it, I believe it's going to be in Colchester now. and so that's actually a place that people can go that are at the end of life. So um, instead of a hospital, instead of the home, instead of a nursing home, it's a completely um, outfitted medical care facility, but it looks like a nice, Home. The rooms have a home-like environment. So it's a place to go and be supported in a loving, caring way with all of the, if you need that skilled medical um, uh, support, you can get the skilled medical support, but you don't have to be in a hospital room. And Central Vermont Medical Center is working on creating a palliative care wing, which will also offer sort of something similar here in Washington County. Um, so those are some that's not a law, but those are some things that are that are unique to our communities. And um, I think the other thing that's important for people to know is that that is a little a little unique. That's not right. But that, that is the case in Vermont is that um, in Vermont, you do not need a funeral director. Uh, to work with a funeral if the death happens and it's not a suspicious death so if you have somebody that's been on hospice let's just use this example somebody that's on hospice so this doesn't is not the same if somebody dies suddenly or dies in an accident or dies under suspicious circumstances then you need to get the medical examiner involved that doesn't mean you can't have a home funeral it's a different story but um If you have somebody that dies while on hospice, so a non-suspicious death, usually the hospice nurse will come out and will certify the time of death, and that's all they need to do. You don't need to call... Is that
2: a a legal requirement to certify?
3: The time of death does need to be certified by a medical care professional, but you don't... You have time. You don't need to call someone right away. You can take... A chance. I I feel like I you know this has become something that I repeat over and over again. You can slow down. It's not. Oh my gosh, somebody died. Everybody do something. You know. It's like okay, they've died. You know. Take a moment. Integrate that. Really, kind of begin to feel that. Um, as our caller mentioned, it, it, there's for some people a very palpable feeling that in the room that you that someone is gone. That it's this change that's happened. Um, so once time of death has been certified, families in Vermont can complete death certificates themselves. You can take that death certificate to the Office of Vital Records, or at the town clerk's office, and file it yourself. You do have to be very careful filling it out um, to make sure that you have all of the information correct and you print it correctly. You can't use whiteout. You can't cross anything out. So I would recommend uh, having a practice death certificate where you... You know, you try it first or maybe write in pencil and write over it in pen. Um, But once you file that, uh, then you get the permits that you need, a burial permit and a transit permit. Um, And that's so for disposition of the body, then you can move the body um, to whatever your plan for final disposition is, um, which is... Now, this is the one thing that is sort of you would think Vermont would be a very easy place to have what we call green funerals, sort of the thing where the body just goes right in the ground or is maybe in a plain pinewood box and there's no cemetery vault. And that's actually not the case in Vermont. It's a little bit more difficult. Cemeteries are privately owned, so you have to find a cemetery that's willing to let you do that. Um, or if you have your own land, you can do this on your own land if you create an easement so that if you ever do sell the land, you can still have access to the grave site and then you just need to register the GPS coordinates.
2: Wait. I'm confused about easement for for a grave site. Why why would that be necessary or, or important?
3: So it's it, you create a public right away to where the grave site is. You not required. It is required. Really? Yeah. So it so that if the land were to ever change hands, people can always get back. It also means that you always have a, a way to access the grave, and that whoever acquires the property is aware of the fact that there is a grave on the property. But what if they
2: have? What if they? Com- willing to completely relinquish the right to return to the gravesite?
3: You know, that's not a question that I know the answer to off the top of my head. Because it just seems
2: needlessly complicated to have that requirement.
3: Yeah, um, I haven't thought about it that way. It is a complication. I would, um, you know, not knowing that answer off the top of my head, I would recommend people go to the National Home Funeral Alliance website. Um, and look it up, I will go back and look it up and email you the answer. Um,
2: I don't want to belabor that at all. I was just Yeah.
3: No, just no, I just, I'd never, if you're willing to, I'm not sure if there's ways around that requirement, um, but it is there to protect people's right to access the gravesite even after the property's passed out of somebody's hands. Um, but So that's on, on private land. Uh, if you register the GPS coordinates and then you can bury your loved one, you don't need a, a memorial, you don't need a vault. This is a common misconception. There is no state in the U.S. that requires embalming. Um, there are a few states that have, if there's a, depending if somebody dies of a very contagious disease, you may need to embalm in some very specific circumstances. But for most of the time, you don't need to embalm. And in cemeteries, they have these concrete vaults that the, the casket is placed in. And that concrete vault, the purpose of that vault is to hold the ground up and to keep it level, to make it easier to maintain the cemetery so you can use a big riding lawnmower. It actually does not... People have this idea that somehow it protects the groundwater, and it, it doesn't. It, it, it serves no other purpose other than to hold the ground up. It's the same with buying these very expensive caskets with the lead lining that somehow we think that we need to um, keep the... It, well, if you do embalm the body, the, the, the chemicals are, are very toxic to the environment, but the casket, even when they're sealed, that seal doesn't last forever. Um, and so none of this stuff is actually environmentally friendly. Um, And we also tend to then, in normal cemetery circumstances, bury bodies uh, too deep. So they're below the active level of the soil. Um, So if you are going to bury somebody on your own land, there's a really great, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a really great resource from the Vermont State Department that talks you through how to do that, uh, how far away from the house, how far away from the water, and how deep the body is. But it's uh, five feet on the bottom.
2: Five feet on the bottom. Yep. Okay. Okay. And we have a caller. Welcome. Hello. Um, the
1: reality is you don't have to have an easement. It's not required. Um, you could just point your body down where you want. Uh, there may be some local zoning issues, um, but there's no requirement that you make an arrangement to get back to the body later. Um, it's advised that you, um, you know, do something to memorialize where it is and put it in the town clerk's office. An easement can also be created when the property is sold. If you don't have to do an easement ahead of time, um, that can just be part of any kind of transmission uh, of property down the road. And relating to uh, green burials, I know I'm I'm, uh, currently president of the uh, Female Consumers of Vermont, and when I was um, not that, I met with uh, uh, Patrick Patrick, uh, Healy, who is the uh, person who takes care of the Montpelier cemeteries. And he was also the head of the Vermont Cemetery Association. And he said, we can do green burials in Greenmont Cemetery. We just have to decide where to do them. So many, many, many cemeteries in Vermont are owned by municipalities. And um, they are administered by a cemetery commission. And sometimes, you know, the case of a big town, somebody like Patrick Healy, who takes care of cemeteries. So one of the things to consider having a conversation about way ahead of time is with your cemetery commissioners, if they've had a, a rule about how you have a wall, to say, well, let's think about a different, different approach to that and get the cemetery commission to change their own rules, because it's just self-imposed, and it is a public entity, typically.
2: Okay, thank you so much for that.
1: You're welcome. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is the Vermont Health Department has a, a lot of information yes. on all of these things that you guys have been talking about, Uh, There's also a pamphlet called Digging
3: Deep. That's the name of it. Thank you so much.
1: And if you just do a Google search on Digging Deep um, or Digging Deep Vermont Health Department, they provide you with a link to it. It's not new, but it gives the statutory provisions and tells you um, how to do home. Vermont is so user-friendly for people who want to handle the last arrangements relating to somebody who's passed away. I I can't think of a state that is more user-friendly, especially in terms of of this template, which is is quite extensive. Uh, And it was put out, interestingly, by the Secretary of State's office, but the link is on the Health Department. And they have lots of other links as well. They tell you about burial at sea. um, So you might want to just go peruse the Health Department's website for um, burial information or death information. There are a
3: bunch of different pages that are involved. Thank you for that yes, okay bye
2: bye bye so what's the definition of a green burial?
3: Well <laughs> um, I think a green burial is one that it tries to be um, environmentally friendly and environmentally conscious on the on the most basic level, and it can take on different forms for different people from that starting point
2: i recently fairly recently saw that some woman had created a a green burial suit with fungi
3: mushrooms, mushrooms yes. and,
2: and i think the cost of it was like $1000 or more which seemed i felt very ambivalent about it <laughs>
3: <laughs> and and actually your ambivalence is 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 um is well placed because No, it's a choice for everybody what they want to do. But one of the the people, what the concerns when the people created that mushroom burial suit is that sometimes people that uh, have been sick before they die die with uh, chemotherapy drugs or radiation in their body Uh, and this is dangerous to the environment. But what happens actually when you die, if you're in the ground, the bacteria in your body and the way that it interacts with the natural environment that it's around actually does all that cleansing all on its own. Mm -hmm. You may want that suit. That may be a choice that you want to make and you may want that expense, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessary. If you wrap someone in a linen shroud and you bury them correctly in the ground, all of that is taken care of. So we're not polluting the environment. Okay. And we have another caller. Hello, Antonio. Hello.
0: Hi, my name is Frank. Can I have a question? Um, as you speak about burial, what about uh, cremation on your own property?
2: Thank you for asking that. I was going to ask that too.
3: You know, that's not something, you know, and it's actually a question that's been asked to me a couple of times and I don't know the answer to it. Um, I have some theories, but I really don't. I, <laughs>
2: what are your theories? I mean, because I was thinking of you know, funeral pyres, the, the traditional Native American practice. Right. Yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, I think that it's hard can for I, me. Can There's can a bit I, about it being your own question, property. Then,
0: excuse me. Okay. I would be interested in knowing, since you know so much about this issue, why you do not know about cremation.
3: Because most of the time when people do cremation with a home funeral, they actually take the body to a crematory for the cremation. So it's not... It's not a common question that I've gotten. And remember, this is new for me, uh, so I'm still learning. Um, And so it's not something I've been very busy planning this conference. And it's been in the back of my mind that I need to look up the answer for this question. Um, So I do have some thoughts about it because it is your own land. um, And if somebody's made it very clear that that's what they want to do with the body, that it may actually be something that you can do. But I am not sure. And I would much rather tell you that I don't know than try to tell you that, you know, I do know something.
0: Oh, sure. Great. I really appreciate it. Yep. Because I've experienced that in Southeast Asia. And it's a very um, raw, stock experience that all the people in the village and the children experience at the same time. And I feel that children... To experience the reality of death will help them and their parents assist them to liberate themselves from certain belief systems that make you believe that you are going to go on forever. I think a limited life makes it more immediate that you take full advantage of being fully human as you proceed through that journey.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Again, using death as a way of accentuating the importance and immediacy of life.
3: Of life. And I think that it's very common. We we tend to want to keep children away from it. Again, I think this comes from this fear and our cultural avoidance of death. Um, But, you know, some beautiful things happen um, at home funerals where, you know, one of the things that you can do is just with the proper preparation, which is really just cooling the body, keep the body at home. And it allows children that chance to kind of get over an initial reluctance to interact with the body and to really see and to feel for themselves what a dead body feels like as opposed to what's become the traditional funeral experience which is you go you know the person dies they go away 3 days later you go to the funeral home and there they are and they're lying in their casket and they're waxy and they don't feel real and it's and i think that in some ways i remember being confused by this as a child um, and it lacks that that sense of, again, that idea that somebody is really gone and that they're changing and that it's something very different from what's happening to you as a child. So yes, I think whether it's witnessing um, a, a burning uh, or whether it's even just spending some time with a body, even if it's just a couple hours, and seeing some of those small changes that happen, it all is really valuable to not... Hide children away, and to let them see that too, and to start to ask questions.
2: Right, like a wake where people can go up and actually touch the body.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: And smell it.
3: Yeah, and <laughs> you know, and and so if you properly cool the body, it's not going to smell bad. It's just going to be, but you can you can remember the person's scent. Um, but you said
2: properly cool the body. Right. Um. At ho- at home, that may not be possible.
3: Oh, it's possible
2: okay like right. I, using ice
3: yeah so uh, what you want to do is you want to keep the room at about 65 degrees um, and if the person hasn't eaten and and is um, you know relatively frail which is very common with death that may be sufficient um, but we tend to recommend uh, we being home funeral guides which is one of the things that I've trained for. Um, using ice. You don't have to use dry ice. You can even use peas from the freezer, although you have to change those out pretty frequently. But you can get a type of ice called techni ice, Uh, which is similar to the ice. If you've ever had a sports injury and you crack that pack open and you put the ice on on the injury um, and you put that over the the core of the body, the front and the back to bring the core temperature down and that just slows down that natural, our body has all sorts of bacteria, all sorts of things that actually turn on after death to help our body break down Mm -hmm. and that just slows that down. Um, so that's what I mean when when I say cooling the body properly.
2: Mm. I'm speaking with Michelle Atravati. She's a end of life care specialist, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And we have another caller. Welcome.
1: Hi. Um, this is. I was just going to announce that that top of the hour station ID anyway. Um, this is bringing um, up a lot of memories for me. I come from a big family, and I've experienced a lot of death. And um, one thing that was just said about the... Well, I come from a Catholic family that had a lot of open caskets, um, which I really hated as a child because <clears throat> the the person didn't look like that person. Sometimes I hadn't seen a cousin for a while, and maybe she was heavy when I last saw her, and she was... then. So I've always just liked that. But, um, but what I wanted to say is that um, when, I, when my father died, he couldn't have choreographed his funeral any better in, in that he was in his home and he had um, Alzheimer's but then diagnosed with lung cancer, which was sort of a blessing for him so that he didn't have to live out his life Um, as he got worse, which he was about to do, and he was able to stay at home. And I wanted to say that it's so important to remember that hearing is the last sense to go, in my understanding, and I have found it to be true, um, that in my when I was with my father holding his hand um, constantly and a lot of his family around him, I would say things to him, I would remind him who I was, you know, I would say, Dad, this is Cynthia, your daughter, um, and over and over again because he had Alzheimer's and he wasn't really responding either. But I know that he heard me because when I walked out of the room, um, my daughter and my husband said he called your name, and this is when he wasn't even responding to anything. And um, But what I did do is try to be... Um, tried i was very grateful and thanked him for being the father that he was and and providing so well for us that we're going to be okay and that we'll take care of mom which i figured was his big worry um and so i would continually say that to him and and to help him pass that way um and uh Anyways, um, I just, I, it, was, it was truly a spiritual experience and my daughter was there too. She was one of the only grandchildren that got there in time and um, when I, I didn't want her, I didn't feel it was necessary for her to be up all night the, the night he died and in the morning when I told her that he died, I just said to her, she was maybe nine, I just said, you know, this, this is a spiritual experience. know this was truly a spiritual experience and she was sleeping actually in his bed um you know next to my mother um or in my you know you know anyway so um i have lots of stories from that i won't go into but it, it was uh you know being at home he could have couldn't have choreographed his death any better he was he was an accountant a certified public accountant and he liked efficiency and the really neat thing that happened around his death was we were all planning a family reunion. It was July, and um, we we knew he couldn't travel anymore, so we had big tents set up, and he died two days before his birthday. And, um, and I think he would have liked the fact that everybody had their plane tickets, all the grandchildren were coming in, and all his children, except for my brother that died, <coughs> were were um, there, around him. Um, his children were around him while he died, and his grandchildren were on the way. And it was a really beautiful thing. Unlike um, this, my mother, who is 94 and in an Alzheimer's uh, ward, and it's such a whole different thing. But again, there, remember, no matter what state your, your loved one is in, even if it's advanced Alzheimer's, I, I found this with my mother, her eyesight's terrible, but she hears me and she's still there. And um, and just one more thing, I, she responds in the way she can to let me know um, that she hears me. And the, one other thing I wanted to say is Patricia that called earlier uh, talked about this energy at, at death. And um, in my own experience, um, I was on the phone to my husband and my daughter who were with uh his mother and grandmother and um, my daughter called me to say please tell dad to stay one more day because they were there for a while and everybody had left she lingered lingered and um so i said okay put him on the phone so she went back she was in hospice and she went back to be with her nana and just as i said look just you know one more night it isn't that he didn't love his mother but he you know he, he had to get back i said stay a little longer, everybody else is left and um except for you know anyhow a sister and just exactly at that moment she came running out into the hallway and said, Come, come right now, and they went in and and, and um that's exactly when she died and it was it was so apropos for her to feel like, okay, this is it, you know i'm'm I'm inconveniencing people and you know, I mean, I know I'm I'm projecting, but um, they did say they felt that energy, and it was really something, um, and so, anyways, it's, it's, it's all a spiritual journey, and, you know, for better or for worse, you know, it's, it's trying to, for me, when I've, I've had to face a death, um, just going through that tunnel where everybody else is normal and they're living their lives, and you're like you're in some tunnel trying to find the light and, you know, you just have to believe that you will and find reasons. So
3: anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing those stories. And you did raise a, a really good point. And I think that sound is is such an important thing. And uh, I found in my experience, and I think there are studies that, that show this as well, that hearing is one of the last senses to go. Um, and, and so that you can continue to communicate. Uh, death... And a lot of times when it, when it happens over a, a longer period of time, sometimes it can happen very quickly, but there is a stage where people really seem to turn inward and they're not communicating with the outside world and sort of a natural reaction or feeling can be that, okay, then you stop talking to them. And I would urge people to follow their intuition because that may be right, but you don't have to. They, they may still be able to hear you and that sound of your voice is still very important. Um, and with Alzheimer's patients, you know, it's so confusing because there are little bits and pieces sometimes, even with people with very advanced Alzheimer's, that come through of their origin you know, of their personality before this disease happened. And that it's important to, to never forget that there are people that they're people with a past and a history and to try and, and, communicate with them as much as possible. And I found that music is often the most effective way to do that. Playing music from their childhood or from their teen years, something that really would resonate with them can be very calming, can be very soothing. Um, my, one, my paternal grandmother had advanced dementia and she still knew all of the songs too. she was a, a ballroom dancer to, so all the, you know, hits that she would ballroom dance to, uh, in the in the 40s and 50s so it's just you know even though she couldn't remember people's names anymore so always looking for ways to communicate and and to keep trying and it really it does increase that bond and the other thing that the caller brought up that I found is also true is that sometimes people um, do need a little bit of space so if you are sitting vigil with somebody that's dying and I do this myself Every couple hours or so, I do get up and I walk around in case they need that privacy to slip away and to actually die. Um, And sometimes people die with you all around. I mean, every death is unique, as I've said before. But to not be afraid to follow your intuition and your instincts about being there, but also to be really sure that... You're not putting your needs in, in the place. So your need to be with somebody is not your intuition about what it is that they need. And to be careful to keep that separate.
2: Honor the space exactly. as being for them. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So are there any other cultures that have helped inform your approach to death and dying?
3: I'm fascinated by other cultures especially sort of historical um traditions uh you know things that from cultures that are are no longer ex- you know in existence in the way that they used to celebrate death and um but has it any particular ones Any you know it's interesting stories? any no any stories not that not that I can think of I'm because for me it all it all blends together part of what I always want to be um very respectful of cultural traditions and i don't ever want to take from another culture when Um, you say
2: you don't want to take from another culture what do you mean
3: i want to be respectful so if i if there's something that speaks to me from from another culture i want to be very respectful of the history and the past that it's had so for me that's still part of of something that's evolving the really going back and looking at the history and where did this come from and why do we do this and even something that I've always loved as a tradition is the, you know, the second line parade that we see a lot in New Orleans which is after someone's been buried when you come back from the cemetery there's sort of this joyous parade with uh, trombones and horns and marching bands and people dance and it's this wonderful experience and that has a very very rich history that I'm just beginning to learn about and it's something that when I was in New Orleans I, I saw and I got to experience I thought this is great you know this is, this is really wonderful. And then you start to learn about where it came from and why it's done in this way. And it has ties back to many different cultural traditions. So it's hard to sort of compact anything in, into a nutshell. But I think that what I take away is that there are so many cultural traditions that celebrate death or that use it as a, as a teaching Point in life um and and that in in different ways but sort of always with the same idea that life is fleeting um no matter what you believe happens afterwards and there are many different beliefs out there and and i respect almost all of them and really have no reason to say that any of them are wrong but that our time as we know it on this life is is in this in this body that we have is is very short, and so to experience the joy, um, the full range of the emotion. Also, it's not always joy of being alive, but to really experience being alive, um, and to to try and live without fear, without fear, um, and that comes from a lot of, of traditions. That's really a uh, used to be a fairly universal thing in the way that we, we approach death and dying so um, yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's
2: do you know much about the day of the dead
3: ceremony S- yeah
2: that whole culture
3: um, you know it's interesting that something that so I was born in San Diego so it's something that I had a, a closer experience with as a child That so that I didn't actually learn a lot about it and again I'm still in the process of learning where that came from um, it's similar. There's a lot of Asian traditions as well, where you put out people's favorite food um, on a, either on a specific day or on the day that they died or on a birthday. Um, in Mexico, it's uh, I believe it's November first. It's the day after Halloween. Um, and you go to the gravesite and you decorate the gravesite with flowers and again you bring food so food is a, a, is a big part of this and you eat favorite foods and you have a, a celebration of who you are now and, and your memories of, of that person um, but it goes much deeper um, we see there's um, sweetness that's involved there's sugar skull candies um, and we're beginning to see this trickle through into the United States you can actually buy them and uh, you see the art of the of the sugar skull is a very tr-
2: and is this this is a Mexican tradition?
3: I believe it started. It's certainly very common in Mexico. I'm not sure, but it's definitely uh, very prominent there. Um, and but it's very similar again to some Asian traditions. And I'm I think that it's also celebrated in other parts of Central America and South America. So, um, but yeah,
2: what what are th- their beliefs about death and about these kind of ritualistic Honorings of the dead.
3: So again, because it was something that I grew up with, I didn't actually learn a lot about it. But I'm just beginning to learn about it. But I think that one of the things that um, that I've learned um, a little bit is that um, there are times, and now I can't remember if this is from the more um, Asian traditions or if this is from the Mexican tradition, but on on certain days where. Um, the spirit world becomes comes closer to the physical world and so part of what you're doing in that sharing is letting that spirit that may come close to know if they're being remembered to let them know that you're remembering them
2: right um, Halloween was supposed to be one of those days, so the day after Halloween would make sense.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think that that's a big part of that tradition, and again, it's something that I'm just beginning to look... Because once you start... I mean, this has been my whole journey. Once you start with one little thing, it's just so much to learn about and it's just books and and stories and talking to people and what they believe and it's always interesting that people that again grow up with certain traditions and don't question them and so it's, it's what they've experienced uh so
2: i'm really curious how what inspired you what what turned you on to this whole area but i want to i want to um let this caller in okay welcome you're on the air
1: no, it's just a very quick thing. Um, the French have that too, you know. All Saints Day is to go and picnic in the cemeteries, and also Memorial Day is sort of our Day of the Dead, because a lot of people um, and those veterans uh, go and uh, you know decorate the graves on that day. A lot of people.
2: Yes. Okay, that's all I want to say. Okay, thanks.
3: Oh, wait a sec, What's Michelle's address? Um, my so if you want to find me on the on the web I want to send. I want to send you some. Okay. So my name is spelled with two L's, so M-I-C-H-E. C oh, S. Yeah, I'll get the name, it's the address. My physical address or or my email for address? For a letter. For a letter. Mail. So uh so that's thirteen Cliff Street in Montpelier. Thirteen What Street? Cliff. C
2: C I F F
3: No oh, C L I F F C L I F F C R
2: right.
3: I S okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Please only send me nice things. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so how how did you get into this? What inspired you? What what turns you on about this whole area?
3: Um you know it's funny uh so I actually I just wrote a blog post about this um literally m- uh, was a friend of mine said to me you should be a death midwife. Um <laughs> <laughs> there's a backstory um, I at the time was working I have a master's degree in neuroscience uh, so and I was uh, working at a at a major hospital and I was experiencing a, a lot of death we've touched a little bit about that and so we must have been having a conversation about something that I wasn't quite satisfied with and this friend of mine who is a, a birth duelist trained to be a birth midwife said you should be a death midwife um, this is about three almost four years ago now and I had no idea what she was talking about, and um, but she explained to me a little bit about this idea of this idea that it's uh, you're a midwife to the people that are dying. You're there to support them. It's a lot, you know, like bringing someone into the world. You're bringing them out of the world. And so I went home and I started looking it up on the internet. And at the time, there wasn't even a Wikipedia entry for death Myth, death Wife. Uh, that just went up in March of this year. Somebody put up a Wikipedia entry. Um, but I found that there are um, mostly women and there's a, um, a few in the U.S. and in Canada um, and there's quite a few in the U.K. Um, Australia is another place that offer trainings in death midwifery and so I found the ones that spoke to me and it started from there so as I began to look into what it meant to be a death midwife it kind of became clear that well this is something that people should know exists as an option and that led me into the advanced care planning realm and so actually thinking about death ahead of time and then right about that time we moved up here to Vermont and I went to my first death cafe and then I was asked to help co-facilitate the death cafe so I began to see how these Conversations were so important to people to have. So, creating a safe space to have conversations, but making them planning conversations became really important to me. And how do we do that? And what's important to plan for? And then again, uh, discovering, um, as I talked about this with my family, that there's a reticence around that. So, breaking down barriers, how to communicate with your loved ones, uh, how to communicate with your uh, care, people that are taking care of you, your your nurses, your doctors. Um, so that the patient literacy and the advocacy piece came in from that. And um, as part of the Death Mood with Free Training, um, a lot of women uh, also that are doing these trainings, and I should mention, so one is Donna Belk and Suzanne O'Brien and Jerry Grace Lyons um, are three women that have been incredible mentors to me. Um, and Jerry Grace Lyons, especially, and Donna Belk, um, have been in this business for a long time and have really helped move the the world of home funerals into the forefront of what we do. And so uh, Jerry Grace Lyons is out in Northern California. She happened to be doing a training in New Hampshire. So I went there. That's where I met Lee Webster. And that's where I began to learn about how to have a home funeral in New England. Um, and as you heard from one of our callers is, so there's something called the Funeral Consumers Alliance, which is a national organization based in Burlington. But there is a, a Vermont office of that, which I think is in Plainfield, either Plainfield or Marshfield. Um, so that again, if and she's, <laughs> way more on the ball, on the ball with a, with the specifics than I am yet I'm still used to having a piece of paper that I can refer to in front of me when I talk about this stuff uh, so there's all sorts of resources there but it's just again it's just this snowballed out from just somebody saying this is what you should do and it felt so right the more that I learned about it and the more that I learn and the more that I do these experiences working as a hospice volunteer helping people with planning the more I want to continue to learn so eventually I'd like to Uh, go to school and do what's called clinical pastoral education and be able to be a chaplain for medical care Um, so be able to provide um, for me, it would be a, a secular training, but be able to support people on, the, on a spiritual level. There's also um, a method that's called companioning, which is a way of being with people, which is something that I've talked about a lot, being present and letting them take the lead. Um, and that's Dr. Alan Wolfett, who's out in Colorado. So I'd like to do that training as well. So it's just the more that I work with people, the more that I see what's needed um, and more that I see, you know, there's wonderful organizations in our communities, but there are also gaps. Um, and and what can I do to help fill those gaps? And a lot of times, sometimes that comes from working with people that say, I want to do this, like people that want to know about whether or not they can do a home cremation. Can they do that? Okay, that's something that I would need to learn about and be able to be a resource for that. So it's just this wonderful world that's opened up to me that I'm just learning to explore and beginning to pull pieces together. And for me, it's about how do I be best of service to the people in my community. And I have to rein myself back in from wanting to change the world um, and really focus on how do I be, do my best by each individual that I work with and really keep it focused when I'm working with an individual just on them and what they need and helping them accomplish what it is that they need. Um, and it rolls out from there.
2: Mm. So what, what do you recommend for people in terms of preparing for their own death? In term not... Not just the physicality of it, but the, um, the personal tying, bringing things all together. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has some um, rituals that, sh- that she writes about that you can do kind of as a, like a practice. Yeah. Like uh, her deathbed ritual, which I've done a couple of times in my life where you, li- you literally spend the whole day in bed. With the curtains drawn, and you I, Im, you know imagine you bring everybody that's been in your life one by one up to your to your deathbed and you you take care of any unfinished business, you right. tell them any of the things that you you haven't said or or just whatever you need to say and do yeah. and that for me that was incredibly profound, and um I'm just curious what what things you you suggest or, or have been effective for you
3: um again you know what i would suggest to to a person would really depend on a person but i think something like the uh, the kubler ross the, the deathbed ritual Um, For people that are um, maybe have some background in in the Buddhist tradition, Stephen Levine wrote a book called A Year to Live, which is an entire year of meditating and practicing and sort of preparing for this idea. And you actually then, at the end of that year, go through a a, a metaphorical death, and then you have a party. Um, Well, wasn't
2: wasn't part of that that he spent a year actually imagining that he only had a year to live.
3: Yes, that was that was his he had a he set a clock and when you do the practice you set a clock, you pick your death date and you and you go through he's so he's written a book. It's called A Year to Live, um, that people can practice with.
2: And you live as
3: if And you live as, as if, if you are literally going to die on mm-hmm. your death date. Um, and you experience that last day, and you try to go through it as realistically as possible. For some people, that's too much. Um,
2: a year is a long
3: time. A year is a long time, and yeah. I know a lot of people that have started it with every intention of going all the way through, and very few people that have finished. But I think even just making that those beginning forays into it, you know, which is why the deathbed ritual the that even el- even one day even one day is a is lot a for lot. some people. Yeah. yeah,
2: to turn off your phones and put a do not disturb sign in your door and just. Shut out the yeah. out, outer world,
3: yeah. But I think that, you know, again, for me, I this is, it comes down to, to what I try to get to in the planning sessions, which is, which is your values and your quality of life. And then what that brings people to, it always comes back to me for stories, is their stories and what makes them who they are and what shaped them. And so I think that um, when you want to prepare, I think the best thing that you can do is do that kind of review of your life And to think about, again, the people that you've known, uh, your childhood, some of your earliest memories, and not to shy away from the bad memories and to not shy away when it gets hard, to let yourself be angry at certain things, to be angry that, you know, sometimes we'll never have a second chance to do something else, right? Um,
2: And we don't know what's on the other side of that anger or the pain. Yeah. On discomfort,
3: exactly. So that's why we should just let it happen. If that's what we're feeling, let that happen and see where that takes us. And and so that's why I think it 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 can be a practice of a lifetime. I really wish that. It was something that was acceptable for, you know, once you get your driver's license, um, mortality becomes so much more of a, of a thin line, right? Cars are very dangerous things. And um, I, I wish that it was really acceptable for us. You know, we, we teach all sorts of things in school and to teach kids to start thinking about, well, well you know, what would, be, what would it be like if, you know, someone you knew died? What would you want to do for them? Um, and you know, what would you want done for you and what are you proud of in your life? And what are you not so proud of? And to not shy away from those bad things, but to go through your life and, and to recognize that. I mean, I think for almost all of us, we don't give ourselves credit for the good that we've brought into the world. And, um, we let fear get in the way. So practices like going to the death cafe and talking about our fears so that those fears can get out of the way of recognizing who we are as people with all of our faults and all the things that embarrass us, but also all the things that we're proud of and all of the things that we've done and looking at that as a whole and just saying, okay, you know, this is me. So let's
2: wrap up by t- talking about the death cafe and, and the workshop and this the coming week.
3: Yeah. So the Death Cafe, um, the Montpelier Death Cafe, there's actually a couple now around Vermont. There's one in um, in Burlington as well. And there's one, I want to say there's one in Plainfield, but I'm not sure. Uh, you can go to deathcafe.com and to find one near you. The Montpelier Death Cafe meets on the third Thursday of every month. So we'll be meeting on Thursday the 18th. Uh, so. That's next Thursday. Um, and you can email Montpelier Death Cafe at gmail.com if you have questions about that. Um, I am actually the, the face behind that email, so uh, I'll be the one responding to you. But uh, certainly email if you're interested in coming. We do cap attendance at 14, just because we only have an hour and a half to talk, so we like to give everybody space and, and to talk. Um, so that's a, a resource that's always available. Uh, we'll be celebrating our third anniversary Uh, in uh, December, I think, is the third year. It'll be the three years that we've been holding this on the third Thursday of every month, and it's a really wonderful community. Every month, there's new people. Every month, there's people that have been there from the beginning, and sometimes people that just come in and out as as they feel the need to be there. So it's really a, a wonderful place, and... If it's something that speaks to you or something that makes you feel a little nervous, I really encourage people to come and check that out. And then again, yeah, I'm I'm launching this business um, as, a, as an end-of-life specialist, and I'm using workshops to do it because I think that having conversations is the best way to um, to learn about what people need and to teach them about that. So that's August 19th through 21st at the Unitarian Church in Montpelier, and people can go to my website, which is www.unitarian.org ending-well.com and get all the details there thank you
2: so much michelle
3: thank you it's been great having you yeah this has been wonderful
2: my guest has been michelle achivati she's an end-of-life care specialist and this has been the magical mystery tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Thank you so much for listening.